0: Today's episode is new, but it was actually recorded a little while back. Yesterday was the premiere of I Love Lucy, the comic strip Peanuts was released last year, and Sherman's speech was just broadcast around the world. Every day, the graduate student writers of Astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent Astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Sound Bites. I'm Melana Rice. I'm a PhD student in the Yale University Astronomy Department, and I study planets and the systems that they reside in.
1: I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign, where I study transients like supernovae through data science.
2: And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres.
0: You're listening to Power Law School. A power law is a very specific function of the form y equals ax to the minus k, where a and k are both constants.
2: Wait a sec, why is it minus k? Can't k just be negative?
0: Yeah, I think that's just a convention where, you know, often we see things that are getting smaller, but... Either way, it's still considered a power law. Okay. So it's actually kind of a running joke that astronomers' jobs are just fitting power laws to different data sets. But in many cases, it's actually kind of true.
1: Yeah, definitely. Power laws come up in nature in a huge range of different settings. Some space-related, but some not. For example, the frequency with which words are used appears to follow a power law, as was noticed by the French stenographer Jean-Baptiste and then explored in more detail by the linguist George Zipf.
2: Interesting. Another fun one I thought of is the distribution of U.S. cities by population. That is, the number of cities of a given population falls off as the population increases following a power law where the exponent is actually about equal to one. Hmm. And interestingly, this was noted by Paul Krugman, famous New York Times columnist and Uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics in a paper he wrote in the 90s that I stumbled across not that long ago.
0: Hmm, Very cool. And there's actually kind of a profound reason for power laws being so common, which is that power laws are the only scale-free distribution. So what that actually means is if you zoom in on a section of a power law, it looks exactly the same in terms of its shape uh, as the larger non-zoomed-in portion, the only difference is a multiplicative constant. And you can mathematically prove that this is the only scale-free distribution. Uh, we'll include a link to that proof in the show notes. I It totally blew my mind when I saw it. And so something that might come to mind when you think about this is fractals, which are another visual representation of these power laws, where you zoom into a picture and it just looks like the same picture again.
1: Another consequence of power law distributions occurring absolutely everywhere in nature is something called Benford's Law, which several people have observed. It states that in a large sample of numbers, the leading digit of a number is more likely to be a 1 than a 2, a 2 than a 3, etc., etc. And it turns out Benford's Law has been found applied to electricity bills, street addresses, stock prices, population numbers,
2: death rates, and lengths of rivers. Wow. Yeah, this is actually a really significant uh, law for this reason. Um, If you imagine like your bank account as you earn money, you spend a lot of time with the leading number being a one because it takes you maybe a long time to get from 10,000 to 20,000. By the time you hit 80,000, getting from 80,000 to 90,000 is not that hard because you've already gotten up that far and earned that much income that's then earning interest and so on and so forth. So. Um, and they've actually used Benford's law to determine things like check cashing scams, wire fraud, and other sorts of things where people manipulate the numbers, but don't realize that they're violating the law. Not the law in <laughs> Benford's law, that is, that is, they're violating the actual law, but they're also violating Benford's law, and that's how they get caught. It's really neat. That's super
1: interesting. I've also heard that Benford originally stumbled upon the law when he was looking through tables of logarithm values. So back in the day you would scroll through these pages and pages of different logarithms and he found that the pages for the logarithms that came to one were much more heavily worn down and the pages were faded much more
2: than the later pages because more people were using them. That's awesome. <laughs> um I'll put in a quick plug for a book that talks about Benford's Law. It's called Rock Break Scissors by William Poundstone. It blew my mind a few years ago. So if you're interested Check that out. Very cool. Cool. But I think it's deserving for us to talk about a little astronomy in this astronomy <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about some power laws in space. Um, Milena, start us off.
0: Yeah, I am super excited to start off with a very historical discovery, actually, in an astrobite that is in itself a classic. So the Astrobyte is from 2012. It's called Astrophysical Classics, Larson's Laws, and it's written by Adele Plunkett. And it's describing a paper from 1981 by Richard Larson called Turbulence and Star Formation in Molecular Clouds. Uh, The Astrobyte itself was inspired by a conference that happened at Yale in 2012 to honor the scientific contributions of Professor Richard Larson uh, while he was about to retire. Um, So he's now one of our emeritus professors, and in particular, maybe one of Professor Larson's greatest contributions was a set of relations describing the observational relationship between properties of molecular clouds, commonly known as Larson's laws.
2: You said this is an observational relationship, but what exactly was observed?
0: So Professor Larson was looking for relationships between the various characteristics of molecular clouds, and he included a wide range of size scales spanning several orders of magnitude from clumps of enhanced density within clouds all the way up to complexes of many clouds. And the paper is compiling data from 38 different references published between 1974 and 1979, and it uses them to develop these three laws.
1: Okay, new Astro Soundbites law. Theories must come in threes. (laughs) How do we feel about that?
0: (laughs) It's been generally fairly true. (laughs)
1: okay so melena i hope i never get tired of asking this question which of the three theories is correct
0: as of 2012 and as far as i know as of today they all still hold actually which is amazing that is never the case we always just pick one of the three theories but (laughs) there have been some slight changes in the exact numbers with better data but qualitatively all of the laws
1: still hold great so can you walk us through some of the ideas presumably they're all power laws.
0: Yes, they are. Uh, So we'll go through them all one by one. The first is that the velocity dispersion of a molecular cloud increases with the size of the cloud with a power law index of 0.38. So velocity dispersion is the typical velocity of all the internal motions of the clouds, so it characterizes the local speed of gas molecules in that cloud. And the positive correlation between velocity dispersion and molecular cloud sizes means that the bigger cloud regions are also more turbulent, and that leads to a higher velocity dispersion, whereas smaller cloud regions are less turbulent.
2: Have we explained for our listeners what a molecular cloud is exactly?
0: Uh, We actually haven't in detail. So molecular clouds are these large clouds of gas from which stars end up forming, and so... One cloud can lead to perhaps many stars, depending on specifically the size of that cloud. Um, But these clouds exist in the interstellar medium, and you get stars from
2: them. And one of the weird things about them is that many people think these clouds are hot because they form stars, which do fusion, but they're actually the coldest because Mm -hmm. only the coldest things can collapse under gravity. Right. In our episode on starless and
1: pre-stellar cores, when we were talking about chemistry a while back, Mm. Those are both different types of molecular clouds. Yes. That's right. Yep. Melina, just to bring us back to the velocity dispersion relation that you were talking about earlier, does this mean that turbulence has to dominate over small-scale processes like stellar winds and supernova explosions, things like that, because you see the velocity dispersion as being larger at larger scales?
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's exactly what it means. And uh, it's also pretty incredible because, like I said, the... Relation hasn't really changed too much, and if you read the text of the paper carefully, it actually says this line was fit by eye.
2: Whoa. Wow.
0: <laughs> Which, you know, you're not really going to see in papers nowadays.
2: That reminds me of how we used to do best fit lines back in high school. You just take <laughs> a ruler, kind of eyeball it, and draw the line. <laughs> Did I ever tell you guys about the time my chemistry class collectively made up data for a lab because nobody remembered to write down the data?
0: Wow. Uh, that's, that's problematic. <laughs> I geez. guess it wasn't going to be published.
2: Yeah, we learned an important lesson about ethics that day. <laughs> Did it show the relationship you were trying to find? Um, oh, too well.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the teacher caught on.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess this fitting by eye business really tells the power of human intuition. Maybe we don't need careful linear interpolations on all sorts of data. Maybe we can just eyeball it. Was the second law eyeballed as well?
0: The first two laws are indeed both fit by eye. Um, So some of the supplementary plots are based on analytical relations. So these specific relations are lines that I assume were drawn maybe with a ruler. And so the second of Larson's laws is also related to the velocity dispersion and states that the velocity dispersion is proportional to cloud mass with a power law index 0.2. And so what that means is that the studied regions are in roughly virial equilibrium, so they're gravitationally bound. Mm -hmm. And different parts of the cloud aren't just drifting away from each other, is what that means. So this is an observational way of showing that more massive clouds have higher turbulent internal velocities to support the clouds against collapse.
1: Okay, this is maybe the result you would expect. You would need more turbulent internal velocities to support these more massive clouds against the collapse. Like a pressure.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. What about the third law, Melena?
0: The third law combines the first two by eliminating velocity dispersion to relate the size of the clouds to the cloud's density. So it's not really independent, but it still provides some pretty important intuition. It states that the cloud's linear size is inversely proportional to their density with a power law index of negative 1.1. And what that actually means is that bigger molecular clouds tend to also be more disperse, Whereas smaller molecular clouds are
2: denser. Interesting. So I don't know, that like that kinda makes sense, since the smaller clumps will like form into protostars. But I don't know, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around that.
0: Yeah, this one the the exact explanation for it was sort of a little hand wavy where it was saying for the larger clouds the Evolution is going to be more complicated, whereas for the smaller Hmm. ones, it actually is starting to look more like what we expect protostars to look like. Because this isn't my field, I couldn't really tell you if that has changed very much since the 80s. Um, But that was sort of what Richard Larson was saying in his paper, at least.
2: All right, so now that we've gotten ourselves grooving on some classic papers, I'm going to keep us here for my bite. And this one is called A Guide to Empirical Velocity Laws. It was written by Michael Kuffmeyer, and I want you guys to guess how many papers this astrobite summarizes.
0: The fact that you say that makes me think it's probably a lot.
2: <laughs> well, it's more than one. I'll give you that. <laughs> right. Two.
0: Uh, four.
2: Milana's got it. It's four.
0: Oh, awesome. <laughs> Are you going to talk about all Four.
2: Well, a little bit, um, but they're very related to each other, so it shouldn't be hard to cover the field. And in this case, I'm talking about galactic astronomy, and these papers are in fact so famous that when you just say the names of the authors, people know exactly what you're talking about. We have the Faber-Jackson relation from one, the Tully-Fisher relation from two, and then two others that aren't quite as famous by name, but are related to those two important relationships. And I'm not a galactic astronomer. This is not my field of study. So I really had to understand and educate myself before we could do this episode. Hey, that's all you can do. As long as you try your best,
1: that's within the astrosoundbite spirit. Thank you for your support. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs>
2: the crux to understanding these important papers is what we already mentioned before, called velocity dispersion. And the dispersion is kind of like the pressure support of a galaxy where it's kind of the random and unusual motions of stars within the galaxy that sort of supports it and keep it structurally sound Mm -hmm. and what these relationships characterize is the velocity and related to the luminosity of the galaxies and it's a pretty important connection
0: yeah so i definitely learned all of these several years back in my galaxies class, but admittedly, I have not thought about them for a very long time. So could you start us off with the Faber-Jackson relation and remind us what that is?
2: Absolutely. Shockingly, it's a power law. (laughs) (laughs) What Faber and Jackson measured were the star velocities in elliptical galaxies. So elliptical galaxies are the kind of funny football-shaped ones that are held together by the random motions. Compare that to spiral galaxies like the Milky Way that are rotating, and they're held together by rotational inertia. So what they found is that the luminosity of a galaxy increases as a function of the velocity dispersion to the fourth power. That is, if you double the velocity dispersion, you double the amount of random motions in the galaxy, of the stars that is, the luminosity goes up by 2 to the 4, that's 16 times brighter. Okay, but
1: surely it's not as neat and tidy as you say it is, as you suggest it might be. It's
2: not exactly four, right? That's right. This is an empirical relation. Um, They didn't fit it by eye. They did a real fit, but it turns out that the number is probably not exactly four, and the theory isn't quite there yet to explain the observed relationship. But the fit has been shown time and time again to be a reasonable fit. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Cool. Could you tell us about... Tully-Fisher as well, is that related to this Faber-Jackson relation?
2: It's almost the same thing. Very, very similar. The key difference is it applies to spiral galaxies. And what Tully and Fisher found is that the luminosity of a spiral galaxy scales as the maximum rotational velocity in the galaxy center to the fourth power. So the fourth power is the important piece. What the maximum rotational velocity means is if you find a point toward the center of the galaxy but not like in the galaxy center we're talking like a little bit out of the center the uh the rotational velocity kind of kind of peaks there and then it stays constant for a long ways as you move out where in the galaxy and then eventually it falls off when you get really far out like we're pretty far out from the center of the milky way you have to go way past us before the velocity falls off so Earth and, and the solar system are kind of at that maximum rotational velocity, and it's not that erratic. It's a very good, smooth rotation.
0: That seems really nice and neat, and it makes me think that this can't be coincidental, right? There must be some physical reason.
2: Th- that they're both a power of four?
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There There is. And it's because that the stellar mass for a main sequence star for the majority of its life is a approximately proportional to its luminosity. So you add more mass, you get more luminosity at about a relationship of one. So this is really important, and that means that these relationships can be used to determine the distances to galaxies because it's really easy for us to measure the stellar velocities with Doppler shifts using uh, spectroscopy. And once we get those velocity dispersions and rotational velocities for the two types of galaxies, we can use the Tully-Fisher or the Faber-Jackson relation to determine how far away that thing would be. That is, how we compare the luminosity we'd expect to the brightness we observe. All right, well, now I know you like talking about power laws, but we
1: got two other papers within (laughs) your astrobite to get through. So briefly, why don't you summarize
2: those? Yeah, these two are from much more recently, published in 2000, and they talk about a similar thing for black holes. They find that the velocity dispersion of stars near a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy scales as the mass of the black hole to the fourth power. Sometimes this is called the Faber-Jackson relation for black holes, but it was not discovered by Faber or Jackson.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. And I suppose it would be for kind of the same reason. I'm trying to wrap my head around why this stellar relationship would also apply to black holes. Do you have an intuition for that?
2: I don't at the moment. That I think that's um, something I, I just can't explain right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I suppose it makes sense that, well, maybe we don't really understand entirely how supermassive black holes form, but it is probably in some way related to stars. I would so, really think so. <laughs> I imagine it's something intertwined with that point.
1: I know there's a scaling relation between like the mass of the central black hole and within the galaxy, the mass of the galaxy. So I wonder Mm -hmm. if because there's a relationship within the galaxy itself, you would also see that relationship within the supermassive black hole or some kind of connection there.
2: It's certainly possible. Uh, There are people that know a lot more about this than I do. And at the moment, I I just don't know enough to to say one way or another, but Mm -hmm. these are very empirical laws meaning that they have been observed with regularity and they have been confirmed with the data, but I don't know if the theory is exactly there yet. Right.
0: So given that these are empirical laws and they were formed in 2000 and earlier, in the decades since those relations were discovered, have other findings supported them or have they been challenged?
2: Right. I I didn't mention this, but the other papers were from the mid-70s. And indeed, the data has come back to support this the it, There is some analytical analysis, but it's it's still not there yet. The theory is not not there yet. And there's a lot we don't know about galaxies. The more I read about it, the more I realize there's a lot of work to be done. But they think the exponent is closer to 3.8 rather than 4. And again, there's not a lot of understanding exactly why. But that being said, this is textbook science. This is the kind of stuff that everyone in the field recognizes is most likely true and can be taught to students over and over again. It's How do you pronounce it? The Faber-Jackson relation? Mm-hmm. That's what I've
1: been saying. I just want to mention before we move on, uh, Faber was the advisor and Jackson was the grad student working under her. And so, Is that right? Yeah. I think it's very cool that Jackson, the graduate student, also gets partial credit for determining this relation. I feel like that's a story you don't hear of happening very often.
2: That's absolutely
1: right. Of them kind of getting equal
2: weighting in the credit. That's very neat.
0: Faber is also female.
2: Mm-hmm. And that, that's a tough time to be a female studying astronomy in the 70s. I'm sure the representation was pretty poor.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: She just mm. got the presidential
1: – well, okay, 2012. She got the Presidential Medal of Science, I think.
0: Wow. Mm. Yeah, I think she won the Gruber Prize for cosmology, which uh, we have like a conference at Yale that – gives out the actual prize and then there's sort of a conference around it. And so there was a conference about her like two years ago or something here, which was pretty cool. It was nice having her here and seeing lots of interesting talks.
2: That's so cool. It's another person who had a conference named for them. That's when you know you've made it. I mean, I guess
0: if you win a huge prize, then yeah. (laughs)
2: That's a (laughs) like, man.
0: So Will, I think it's your turn to bring in a space sound for this week so mm-hmm. i guess it's time for the astro soundscape of the space fortnight of the bi-weekly podcast <laughs> are you <laughs> do, do you have a sound ready for us
2: i do i do um avert your eyes it'll be exactly obvious what i'm showing you <laughs> as soon as i i open the youtube okay thank you Okay, what did we just hear?
0: Every time I hear something that sounds like white noise, I just assume it's the ISS now.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> they do make good noise.
0: <laughs> Alex, do you have a better guess? I'm, I was going to say probably not thing. that. It's,
2: it's some kind of white noise. <laughs> You're right that it is noise, but it's not white. This is pink noise. Ah. Oh. Yeah. uh, Now, why did I choose pink noise for this special sound? Because it follows a power law. Because it follows a power law. Isn't that great? Beautiful. Power law for your ears.
0: Wait, can you explain what pink noise is?
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So the, the technical name for this sort of thing is flicker noise. So people call it flicker noise or pink noise. And the idea is the power of each frequency of sound falls off as a function of frequency with an exponent in a power law. And the exponent is about one, so it falls off as one over frequency. So if you plot it up on a log plot, it looks like it's linearly decreasing with frequency. Whereas uh,
1: white noise yeah. has an exponent of zero, meaning it's independent; the power is independent of the frequency.
0: What do people use these things for? Do we need different types of noise for different things?
1: We need to constrain different types of noise, so being able to fit exactly how how noise arises within your detector measurements.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: That's exactly it. Some things just produce pink noise instead of white noise, so you need to be able to characterize it. This is just a YouTube video that I found online. That's 10 hours of pink noise. I don't know why you'd want that, but <laughs> <laughs> That's a different kind of power law school. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex, it's your turn. Tell us about an astrobite. All right. <laughs> now, <laughs> the astrobite I'm going to be
1: talking about isn't necessarily this grand historic power law relation, but I'm going to be talking about something that I find very cool, which are pulsars. Now, Pulsars are neutron stars that rotate incredibly quickly, and they send out streams of radiation as they spin. So the astrobite I'm going to be talking about is called The Effect of Superfluid Hydrodynamics on Pulsar Glitch Sizes and Waiting Times by Lisa Drummond, and that's based on a paper by Haskell from 2016.
0: Cool. I'm excited to hear about pulsars sort of outside of the context of planets, since I think that's the main way we've talked about them in the past. <laughs> so... Right. How quickly exactly do these pulsars spin?
1: So for newborn pulsars, the number that I could find was around 60 hertz or 60 times a second. Mm -hmm. However, the fastest pulsar yet clocked was clocked in at 700 hertz. And just for reference, its equator was spinning at 24% the speed of light. Wow. Whoa. (laughs) Is that incredible? (laughs) That's whack. That's
0: incredible.
1: Yeah, it's wild. It it really is mind-blowing. Now, pulsars, over time, spin down as they lose energy from the radiation I was talking about earlier. And you can think about this like a a top on the table slowing down its rotation. But sometimes the pulsars unexpectedly speed up over an incredibly short timescale, around roughly one millionth of the timescale of the slowdown. And this sudden speed-up is called a glitch. Like a glitch in the matrix? Like a glitch in the matrix. So this is actually not uh, an observational artifact like you would think of a glitch being. But this is actually, we think, a physical effect from the pulsar itself. Now, glitches are incredibly hard to observe because of how quickly they occur. So we only really have a few examples of them. Yeah, what do we know about these things? Well, because it's on this episode, we know, for example, that their size distribution follows a power law.
0: (laughs) Or, at at least,
1: most of them do. So, the Vela pulsar seems to have more large glitches than you would expect, roughly occurring periodically. And you also see fewer small glitches for the crab pulsar than you would expect from a purely power law fit.
0: Is there a particular reason that they should follow a power law? I mean, that would probably shed some light on why there are some that deviate, right? The exception proving the rule?
2: Or the rule proving the exception.
1: (laughs) Yeah, either way, it's a great (laughs) question. And to answer it, we have to dive a little bit into neutron star theory. So theoretical predictions provide evidence that neutron star stuff, the interior core of the neutron star, acts like a superfluid where it swirls around the interior with absolutely no friction at all.
0: Okay, that seems like a pretty crazy claim to make on theory sure. alone, although I guess lots of crazy stuff is apparently happening with neutron stars. We've talked about the awesome. pasta
2: interiors. <laughs> yes, we have. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a delicious lasagna center.
0: <laughs> Yum. <laughs> so is is there observational evidence for this claim?
2: There is,
1: yeah, surprisingly. Actually, there was another paper out in 2011 arguing that the rate of cooling on the surface of a young neutron star in Cas A was evidence of superfluidity at its core. So if this is actually true, it would be a very big deal because a rotating superfluid has a few mind-blowing <laughs> properties. Yeah. And most importantly for this conversation, because there's no static friction between the neutron star stuff within the core, it doesn't rotate as a bulk material, but instead breaks up into tiny little spinning vortices that are called quantum vortices. So, just for reference, I was reading uh, this paper earlier, and they argued that in a container of superfluid of radius 1 centimeter, rotating at 1 hertz, there are approximately 1,000 vortices that form.
2: Whoa. 1 centimeter. So, I mean, they're a crazy number in the neutron star. Right. So if
1: you just follow a volume scaling argument, there are potentially 10 to the 21 vortices within the core itself. So that's around the number of grains of sand on the earth. Quick question
2: about this. Yeah. Um, For my fluids class, I remember that if there's no viscosity, you cannot get vorticity. You can't have a vortex forming without viscosity. Isn't that the case with a superfluid? Or does it just do other things? I have no idea. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I mean,
0: I assume it's called quantum for a reason, right? I was also going to mm. ask about that. Like, why quantum? Because, you know, a thousand vortices in a centimeter seems small, but in terms of quantum, it doesn't seem that small. Fair enough. So maybe right, it right. has to do with that.
1: So they, they argue that it's a quantum effect, or I guess, uh, yeah, a quantum effect that manifests itself on microscopic and macroscopic scales. So... The vortices that we see are on the microscopic scale. However, the phenomena that arise uh, that cause vortices to spin around their own individual axes, they argue, is a quantum mechanical property.
2: Okay, so that's why fluid dynamics wouldn't apply here, because that only deals with macroscopic quantities. Right,
1: but actually we'll get to that uh, a little bit later.
2: Okay. Okay. So,
1: it gets even crazier than we've been talking about, because as the star spins down, and when we say spin down, we're talking about the crust and not the the uh, core of the neutron star. The vortices, again, because they're frictionless and have now a higher angular momentum than the crust, can slowly migrate outward of the neutron star interior and into the crust. And... Once in the crust, they can get stuck in potential wells caused by overdensities in the crust, and they can build up in a few of those overdense regions in the crust. Now, the authors of this paper argue that this continues to occur until there's a moment of what they call self-organized criticality, which is basically just like an avalanche. You have a build up until you can't build up anymore, and the whole thing uh, falls. In this case, the built up energy at the overdensities. Is released in a sudden increase of angular momentum in the crust and a speeding up of the neutron star itself wow, which is incredibly mind boggling to think about, but all of that is to say, if this is the case of this avalanche event, we would see these glitches follow a power law
0: Wow, this is also mind blowing I'm just like trying to absorb it all <laughs> okay right,
2: same right okay,
0: so if we Sort of understand why they might follow a power law, then. How do we explain the deviations from the power laws?
1: Right. Yeah, it's a great point. So the authors ran a macroscopic, hydrodynamical, superfluid model. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of big words. (laughs) So so this is where the macroscopic effects, like you were talking about, Will, come Mm -hmm. into play. So they ran a glitch-finding algorithm to get a simulated observed distribution of glitches. And they found, A, that macroscopic phenomena from the fluid dynamics can lead to deviations from a power law for large glitches. Although they don't exactly argue what these phenomena are. Okay. Okay. And, B, that tiny glitches occur on a more gradual time scale, and so the glitch-finding algorithm just misses them entirely. So this biases against tiny glitches, which causes the deviation from power law
2: at small scales. If you have a glitch finding code with a bug, how do you debug the glitch glitch <laughs>
1: <laughs> Is that a Schultz overseen poem
0: <laughs> also how do they how do they confirm that these definitely aren't actually just glitches of some sort, like in the instrumentation or the code or something like have these been observed with multiple instruments or something?
1: The glitches themselves, yeah. So they have, uh, but it's also a fairly small sample size. So I talked okay. about in the Vela pulsar, in the crab pulsar, I think there are only like a handful of pulsars that they've observed these glitches on. So definitely dedicated observational time for more pulsars would be uh, nice to verify the predictions they're making.
0: Yeah, it all just sounds so much like science fiction. it almost feels like it's like so cool that I'm like, is it real? But it would be really cool if it was real. I don't know too much about this field, so it's kind of hard for me to gauge.
1: Yeah, the, the theory <laughs> actually goes back to around the 70s. So there is a lot oh. of uh, a lot of built up theory mm-hmm. compounding on this whole glitch notion as a function of quantum mechanical vortices.
2: But the whole thing just makes my head spin. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where to start evaluating this. <laughs>
0: Well, it sounds like all of our papers are sort of legacy ideas in a way. Yeah. Uh, Maybe we should give just brief summaries before we go into a bigger discussion about it.
2: Let's do it. Sounds good.
0: Uh, Will, do you want to start us off?
2: For galaxies, the power law of velocity or velocity dispersion to luminosity follows a power law of about exponent of 4. Milena?
0: Larson's laws have given us empirical relations to relate the velocity dispersion, size, and mass of molecular clouds back in the 80s, and those laws still appear to hold to this day. Alex?
1: Though a thorough understanding might make your head spin, (laughs) superfluidity is (laughs) both the exception and the rule for explaining the rapid spin-up of some
2: pulsars. Makes your head and your neutron star spin. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so we've talked about a lot of different contexts for power laws, both in space and beyond space, and so I was wondering if anyone has actually used power laws in your research?
2: You know, I can't think of anything. I'm sure I have, but it doesn't immediately come to mind. Yeah, I have not.
0: Oh, I definitely have. (laughs) (laughs) My most recent paper was basically fitting a power law. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the size distribution of lots of different small body populations is thought to follow a power law, and so, like, a fair bit of my work has been at least related to small bodies, and so I was trying to figure out the distribution of interstellar object sizes by figuring out what power law distributions would fit based on what we've seen and also what we haven't seen. So I've used power laws in that context, but... I guess I haven't really used it for any other research. So maybe it depends on what field you're in. Like if you're doing if you're trying to figure out something theoretical, maybe it would be more common to use them than otherwise.
2: For asteroids, it's about an exponent of 3, right?
0: Uh, it depends on the population. I think that's maybe oh. Kuiper belt objects. Could be wrong.
2: That sounds right.
0: <laughs> yeah. But yeah, also crater sizes follow a power law, and that's because the asteroids follow a power law.
1: I know power laws are also incredibly valuable for modeling turbulence at different scales, although I have not done that myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. A common thread through all of our astrobites is that we're talking about topics that have been explored since the 70s and 80s. They're sort of older topics, not necessarily... Very, very recent research. So, do you think there's a reason for that?
2: My guess would be that it takes a long time for these to really become laws. And at first, it may be just some data seems to fit a trend. But over time, when more people observe it and people talk about it at conferences and in papers, then it starts to become accepted as maybe this is really an empirical measurement of something fundamental in the universe.
1: I also think that. As this field was really starting to get going, the fact that power laws are so fundamental in nature, when a new research area began to open up, people immediately said, well, can we apply a power law to this data? It's like one of the first things you might do is look at it with respect to a power law.
0: Right.
2: Good point as well.
0: It's really making me wonder, though, because like exoplanets is a pretty new field, but we didn't talk about exoplanets at all. And I'm not sure if that's just because... There are so many very long standing relations that have to do with power laws. And so it makes sense to talk about classic papers, or if there actually just aren't a lot of power laws in that field. And I'm not sure that there's like a reason for that. Or maybe I'm just not thinking of the right thing right now. Maybe there are power laws somewhere in there.
1: There certainly could be. I think it's also the case that. Power laws are now so ingrained within our field that the fact that something follows a power law might not be big headlines anymore. I feel like nowadays people just use power laws within their research. But all these papers from the 70s and 80s that we were talking about, they highlight, oh, this relationship is a power law. And so the fact that it's the primary focus of the astrobite means we talk about it.
2: That's a great point. People were much more hype on power laws back in the day.
0: Yeah. Do you foresee any new discoveries coming up related to power laws with newer fields? It's a good question. Related to maybe FRBs or I guess also exoplanets or other fields where they haven't really historically been used so much. Atmospheres, I don't know if there's a particular way that power laws would be used in atmospheres.
2: I can't really think of one. But what, what came to mind when you asked this question is when some of the big observatories like the Vera Rubin Observatory and James Webb Space Telescope come online, they're going to see things fainter, deeper, further back in time, further away in the universe that we've ever seen before. And they're going to do population statistics on those things. And once population okay. statistics gets going and we actually have a collection of, of quasars that you know is so much larger than it is today, maybe these relations will just kind of fall out of the data. Yeah, that's a really great point.
0: It's a really good point that power laws seem to follow from population statistics. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's just that there aren't a lot of new groups of objects that we've very recently gotten statistics on that we didn't have before. I mean, there are like 4,000 exoplanets known, which is kind of a lot, but it's actually not that many. And so maybe power laws will fall out later. And FRBs, I don't think many are known.
2: I think the bigger issue with exoplanets is our population sample is so incomplete. Mm-hmm. that We have groupings of like uh, hot Jupiters, which is something we've never thought about before it was suddenly discovered. And these very far away like super Earths that orbit every 12 years and, you know, and crazy things like that. So until we get a complete population survey, which I think is coming in time, I, you know, maybe there's just not enough information to span the orders of magnitude needed for a power law.
0: Yeah.
1: That's a great point. I think there were probably distributions that we fit that in reality follow a power law and that power law is masked by our observational biases. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm interested to see what power laws come to light in coming years.
1: Me too. (laughs) Right. Yeah, in the next decade when we collect more data, just know the astronomers will be there fitting power laws. (laughs)
0: That concludes this episode of Astro Soundbites, Power Loss School. If you want to read the three astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.